In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. So, let's see, where are we? Where are we tonight? Where were we? Where are we going? What book are we on? So, let's see, uh, tonight we had some reading from the biography, and then uh, because, <clears throat> because last week the reading from the biography was sort of um, not that productive, let's say, for us or for me. I uh, also added reading from the uh, text at the back, the Madhyamaka section. And sure enough, once again, the reading from the biography is really not that noteworthy. So I thought we would just skip that and go right to the texts. What do you guys think? Whatever you like. Come on. Somebody, please. I found the beginning was good, but right. And then suddenly it started doing the same thing about, oh, fuss. About fussing. Seven pages in. And then I was like, "Ah, let me skip to the other part. (laughs) Yeah. But the beginning was kind of good, but just about. Come on, somebody, anybody, help me out here. Mary Beth. I hate to say it, but I couldn't help but think that my hidden life, my hidden life, unfortunately, is full of things like doing dishes and vacuuming. And Shh, those are secret. You can't tell those to other people. Shh, don't say that. It's being recorded. <laughs> I okay. thought it was. And I thought, did a man write this? <laughs> I thought it was the mythology of miracles. Wow. I must I must confess that I was kidding and uh, pulling your <laughs> legs. And I thought the reading tonight was amazing. I thought the hidden life was amazing. So just goes to show you. What I bullsh- kind of got off on the seven-line prayer. Yeah, uh, yeah, we're bullshitting. We'll get you. But towards the back, guys. I'm sorry for being deceitful. Towards 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 your the back, yeah. It had the seven line prayer in here, uh, yeah. and a little bit of that explanation. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, in the in the uh, White Lotus text, right? Has anybody taken a peek? There's these other texts at the back here: the White Lotus and the lamp that dispels darkness. I don't want to make any more joke bad jokes, but I mean, what else does a lamp do? But 
So with your permission, I'd like to beg your forgiveness and, and request your permission to go through the biography chapter of A Hidden Life also. Is that okay? Show us what we missed, Derek. Cool. Okay. And now, you know, there's some odd stuff in here. I don't know if you noticed, but there's some weird stuff. And uh, I, the, I don't know. I don't understand all of it. I don't know all the little details. And some of it that I do know I can't fully explain because we're not all Fadriana students. But I thought it was still pretty amazing. So anyway, on page 75, generally speaking, the sphere of the profound qualities of elimination and realization. Those are the two phases of uh, weight loss, health for health. When you're a health rebuilding, you do a cleanse. And no, just kidding. These are the two qualities of Buddhahood eliminating defilements and realizing all the. Uh, the nature of reality and all the different strengths and braveries and wisdoms that come along with the ultimate level of compassion of a Buddha. The inconceivable secret of the body, speech, and mind of an enlightened being. Why is the, why, why what is the secret about the body, speech, and mind of an enlightened being? What's the big secret? Do they have like, you know, special toes or like weird earlobes or, you know, what is the secret of the body, speech, and mind of an enlightened being? You're right. That's it. They're completely inconceivable. The body, speech, and mind of an enlightened being are each one of them completely inconceivable. And that's why it's secret, because nobody can, like, understand it and, and explain it to anyone else. The body, speech, and mind of an enlightened being are incomprehensibly vast and limitless and totally beyond the, the realm of ordinary beings. It is beyond the grasp even of bodhisattvas who directly behold the truth of the Dharmatan, the noble path, meaning from the first to the tenth boomies. This being so, there is no need to speak of the comprehension of ordinary beings who are not on the noble path, such as myself. And he gives a couple of cool quotes. Uh, which I'll skip, but then on page 76, great and supremely noble bodhisattvas may be assessed through the outer evidence of their words and deeds. They can be known through many signs, direct and indirect, that indicate that they are completely different from ordinary childish beings. Through the accurate perception of even small quantities of elimination and realization, through seeing even just like a little bit of their their aspect of elimination and realization. Fortunate beings can gain a partial understanding of their superior superior excellence in the same way that by tasting a single drop of seawater, one can understand the taste of the entire ocean. So just by seeing a little bit of like the ability to memorize texts or to understand and explain texts or to... Uh, um, uh, um, be uh, to speak in ways that uh, many different types of people can understand. We gain an understanding, a little glimpse of the vastness of the enlightened being. 
It is said on the basis of trustworthy report that when a Karma Taktsong, which is one of the three Taktsongs, tiger caves in uh, Tibet that Padmasambhava went to and practiced in to uh, tame the wild deities of Tibet, the wild spirits, Mipam Rimshe was absorbed in the concentration of boundless love. I thought that was cool. He's, you know, in addition to all these complicated Vajrayana, this and that, he's doing Maitri practice. I thought that was really cool. Um, and when he reflected on the suffering of beings in the hell realms, he fell into such a state of grief he could not eat, and he would say that he needed to relax his mind by meditating on the empty nature of the Dharmata. At Lop Zutral Pak, when he was absorbed in the approach phase of the practice of White Manjushri, which is sort of like the uh, the foundational phase of uh, visualization practice of that deity, called the approach phase, according to the Mati tradition, which I think uh, is uh, Nari Panchan. Wangi Gelpo, he uh, that guy who wrote the uh, perfect the book Perfect Conduct, which is what Mepom first memorized as a child. He would concentrate on the garland of the mantra, turning at such speed that the entire environment would seem to him to be revolving like a chariot wheel. Now that's a little bit of an obscure reference to some aspect of visualization practice that I'm not allowed to share with you, but the general idea is that he was practicing with such an intensity that like the world around him just like sort of whirled into uh, into some sort of dissolving. Through the rough perception of ordinary appearance would cease and he would pass his time in a state of concentration just like is described in the text. When this happened, all he would say was it's due to the, the it's probably just due to the blessings of his teacher, not him. Once as he was offering circumambulations at the Tara temple at Long Tong, he said the Tara appeared to him directly, gave him a prediction. On another occasion, he recalled that once when he had been in retreat for many years, he had remained in the one-pointed concentration of the generation and perfection stages just as the text described, such that he never recited a single mala of mantra with a distracted mind, which is an un unhuman feat. Given, you know, the numbers of mala recitations that he's doing, you know, 1,300,000 know, of this and, you know, 300,000 of that and to, you know, never really space out while you're doing that. It's amazing. Um, on another occasion when he was visiting Jami and Kensei Wangpo, this is a cool interaction, the latter asked him, so how do you practice while you're in retreat? <laughs> Which is sort of funny. You know, so the teacher is asking the student, right, so what do you do when you're on your retreat there? And he says, when I'm engaged in intellectual study, I pursue my investigations to their conclusion. On the other hand, since I feel I have to accomplish the generation stage while in retreat. The way he phrased that I thought was really interesting. Since I feel I have to complete the generation stage while in retreat. It's like he's doing it as a, like an obligatory thing in order to like complete or accomplish different 
different deity practices so that he sort of makes them more accessible to others in this cosmic way. They're not really for him. Uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. There's a generation stage and a perfection stage. Is can you explain a little bit of what? Yeah, just briefly the here? just briefly the generation stage is when we are visualizing the deity, and uh, we do the mantra of the deity, and we and we either visualize the deity in front of us or ourselves as the deity, or sometimes as a combination of the two. And uh, the, the perfection stage is when we dissolve the entire visualization into emptiness and experience the, the, what's called the adhisthana, the blessings of that deity practice, of that yidam practice. So those, are the, two, those are the two phases, phases of uh, Vajrayana practice. Uh, so when I, I do the recitation for the approach of the Yadam deity, I practice with great care. And Chiyami Kensei Wangpo is sort of, poke, uh, sort of prodding him, says, it's really difficult to do all that. Didn't the omniscient one, i.e. Long Chenpa, say that one should just simply stay where one is without doing anything? Like that approach, huh? <laughs> I don't know. That's, there's like a double-edged sword there, though. If you just stay where where one is without doing anything, then one's going to remain where one is <laughs> for a very long time. <laughs> one might end up just remaining where one is in terms of like on the It kind of depends on where one is at that point, whether I it works or not, so. right? <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, personally, that's how I practice. Uh, Jeremy, I can't say Wongpo. I never saw the so-called face of the mind as something with a white and rosy skin. Now, the mind, th this phrase of white and rosy skin is how they describe the faces of, of uh, living human beings. And so he's saying like, he's, he's really saying, I never saw the mind. Is, is that, I they were talking about the white and rosy skin as being the quality of visualization. You're breaking up, but I think you said as the as the the, the quality of the deity. Is that what you said? Yeah, so I was interpreting that he was basically looking at never rose as a deity with a rosy face. So I thought he was kind of playing on that. As, uh, we'll have to look into that. We'll have to research that. Can you can you make a note? And you and I will look, yeah. look that one up. So I think the white and rosy face is a general term for humanoids. And he's, okay. saying, he's saying that, I never discovered any mind. I never could see the mind. And they often talk about how even the Buddhas of the three times will not find their mind. The uh, I thought it was more like try, try turning your visual off Cynthia and, and your audio may get better because it's totally broken up and hard to hear sorry it's I don't know can you hear better now yes much better thanks okay great oh, well. yeah. <laughs> 
why the connection is so bad, but thanks. Anyway, to be determined. Yes. Okay. All the same, he said with a peal of laughter, if I die, if I could die now, and I wouldn't have, I could die now and I wouldn't have the slightest anxiety. You know, so on the one hand, he's poo-pooing his experience, and on the other, he's saying, there's nothing, there's not a shred of self-clinging left. And me, Palmer considered this to be a direct instruction from his teacher on how to practice. On the other hand, he thought that through his intense practice of the generation stage he had, of the five levels of meditative experience reached out of habituation, which is like the peaceful flow of a river. And this is the scheme of the different stages of meditation practice one goes through, starting, starting with the waterfall. We all know the waterfall, right? <laughs> go to a, go to your first week long retreat, you know, for peace and quiet, and boom, your mind just freaking goes wild, and then it turns into a fast moving gorge, and then a fast moving river, and then a slow moving river, and then it meets the ocean. Anyway. Um, and he thought, too, that through the practice of calm abiding, he had probably achieved by then a one-pointedly focused mind, which, according to the footnote, is the eighth stage of shamatha. What do you think of this statement? What's your reaction, Eric? That, that raises a lot of questions. Based yeah, on how many? Schemes. Well, like that if you don't achieve shamatha, you're not going to achieve Xinjiang. And then how do you achieve insight? But um, he doesn't seem too concerned about it. He seems to think that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. He thinks the eighth stage is awesome. And then he says, still, he said, if I've now, if now I have achieved a state of calm abiding, I've had deep insight already for a long time since I was a child. So he does Questions doesn't, about. Yeah, so qu the, questions, the questions are, you know, okay, a guy like Mipom, you know, one of the most amazing humans ever to walk this earth, according to the Buddhist tradition, only at the eighth stage of shamatha, hasn't completed shamatha. Maybe it's, maybe he's young still, you know, but still. And then secondly, he's he's had insight, full insight, without having achieved shamatha for, for, since he was a kid. So as Eric is indicating, the normal scheme is like you have to achieve insight. Sorry, uh, shamatha before you can really achieve insight. Now, the Tibetan scheme has has a much different view of that, where you you uh, need to achieve some level of shamatha before insight will dawn, and and when insight will dawn varies depending upon the person's uh, acumen meaning a combination of past karmic propensities and current uh, application. And the other thing is that either he's being humble, and maybe he, you know, he's saying, I, I didn't really achieve full shamatha, maybe he's lying or kidding, or being humble. Or, you know, on the other hand, achieving full shamatha is not a common thing. Even though you know we teach all these stages, and and in the textbooks you know you have these stages, and then the jhanas, but they're rather advanced. Sort of just leaves a question mark, which is good. It's good to like have these sort of like odd you know interruptions to the normal scheme that we think the dharma takes, so that you 
you uh, you don't you, so you sort of gain beginner's mind again in your exploration of like oh maybe things aren't exactly you know all said and done and I need to to look into this this we may deduce from his words that through the power of the awakened and of his innate and acquired intelligence the ultimate nature was manifest to him from the beginning of his life and thus he enjoyed and that he thus enjoyed the simultaneous occurrence of realization and freedom, the complete possessions of the power of awareness. At Karmo Taktsang, during his practice of the approach and perfection stages of Manjushri Yamataka, he said that whether, that whether he, in waking life, meditative experience, or dreams, all the signs explained in the text manifested perfectly without a single exception. And, uh, you know, so what are the signs mentioned in the text? There's things like um, seeing uh, um, when you achieve stabilization of your concentration. There's these, sign, these famous ten signs that Rinpoche, Trungpa Rinpoche mentions in the Profound Treasury in Volume 1 in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, at the end of the Mindfulness of Mind chapter, he goes through what he calls temporary experiences or nyams in Tibetan. And among those, he gives the five stages of of, uh, of shamatha practice from a waterfall onward. And then he also gives, um, he I believe he mentions the ten signs, and he also mentions bliss, luminosity, and non-thought. But the ten signs are smoke, fireflies, fluttering light, uh, uh, sort of murky darkness, like uh, in a full moon night, things like that. Um, then other signs of accomplishment are the deity appearing to you in dreams or in real life, in waking life. Those are the, the real big signs, obviously. He said that, he said too, that in the evening of the eighth day of his approach recitation of deities of the eight mandalas, and the eight mandalas are the main scheme of uh, yidams in the Nyingma tradition. He saw in reality in the sky before him the great mandala completely perfect of the worldly mamos, the great Hiruka Shim, Shimukale, surrounded by countless millions of dakinis. So just like uh, just like Marpa, just seen in the sky, right in, right in front of you, this appearance of all these deities. And in front of this great multitude he saw Peldon Lamo Remati, our only mother, in the demeanor of a servant who, with dancing gestures, was making prostrations. That's one of the main protectors of Tibet. Whereupon Mipam Rimshe said, he sang the prayer of offering to, to Remati, 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 composed by Rikdu Drakpotsel, the accomplished master of Repkong, together with certain additions. It was about that time also, that one early one morning when he was assisting the precious Lama also brought him his team, he said, a Dakini has just was just here. She sang the seven-line prayer to such a delightful melody. Didn't you hear her? I did not, said Lama also. You must be joking, she said. It's the reason I composed this guru yoga practice based on the seven-line prayer. If you recite it, it'll be very good for you. And he gave it to him with an explanation on how he should practice it. 
And during the course of his life, precious Lama Osel recited the seven-line prayer 1,300,000 times, as a result of which several marvelous signs of accomplishment appeared. It's a lot of times. And it was thanks also to his repeated request that we now have this text called The White Lotus, which is Mipa Rinpoche's commentary on the seven-line prayer to Guru Rinpoche. And uh, there's an excerpt from that text in the back of this book from the White Lotus text. Once during the ritual of the paper effigy that follows the throwing of the Torma in the practice of Manjushri, Lord of Longevity. So, this should bring up lots of questions. Oh, there's a practice, uh, there's a type of Manjushri that related to longevity. And they do a practice to that version. Yes, Tibetans do zillions of longevity practices. They're constantly doing practices to lengthen their lives or the lives of other teachers. Like, all the time, Tibetans are doing longevity practices for the Dalai Lama to try to keep him alive. And what's a torma? A torma is a little uh, representation of a certain type of deity. It's uh, made out of barley flour that's roasted and usually painted with various colors on it. And they come in different shapes and sizes. And they're um, used for making offerings. So you literally throw them out the window or off a cliff or in this, what we'll see soon is at a target. <laughs> they establish a place where they're going to make the offerings for a particular deity that's involved in a sadhana practice. And they put all the torma there. So, um, Mipam Rinpoche fired the rifle himself. So, this may sound re really strange, but actually during the time of the Buddha, when he, when he taught the Manjushri Tantra, he happened to have a rifle, and so he included that in the Tantra. Are you guys paying attention at all? Can you, like, like what, what do you smile mean? or shake My your head or something? <laughs> no, this is obviously... Yeah, I don't know about the rifle. <laughs> the rifle, give me a break. This is obviously a much later invention of theirs of how to implement some part of the uh, the practice, and the, uh, but they're innovative. Those Tibetans <laughs> they included a rifle in the thing, and then you see, uh, and the effigy. So there's an effigy. <laughs> so they create a little effigy of the negative spirits, and uh, the main effigy. In, in sadhanas that have such things is the effigy of the ego. They make a little effigy of the ego and they kill the ego in a ritual way. So ultimately all the all the negative spirits, evil spirits represent the ego. Um, fired the rifle himself and the effigy surrounded by grass and brushwood burst into flames. So he had some sort of misfiring, I guess. And again, when he arranged the sadhana of the union of the sugatas, sugatas is another word for tatagatas. It's, it's like uh, tatagatas is sugar-free and sugatas is with sugar. And the eight mandala cycle, we just saw the eight mandalas, was the eight deities, and Prashislam also was making a copy of, of it. There was a sudden fire. You know, so it's like, 
what are the stories that get handed down as like, you know, cool little occurrences? Odd little things. There was a fire suddenly in the room, and that like meant something to them. It's weird. Anyway, during a long life ceremony, for Lama Pema, Mipar Mimshi had for four days performed the obstacle-repelling ritual of black Hayagriva taken from the Nyong Ter, which is a certain type of terma. The rock that had been the target of the Torma throwing <laughs> ritual was wreathed in fire and smoke, and the following day it was found that it had crumbled to dust and had been blown away. All signs that their practice of uh, expelling the negative spirits and overcoming the obstacles to longevity were very powerful. Another occasion, he, jobs, he jumps off the top of a cliff and his attendant freaks out and runs down to get him and he's down at the bottom sitting in full lotus meditating. But probably with like a big smile on his face saying, ah, I really got you that time. <laughs> Weird little stories. Once when the princess of Dega had fallen ill, Mipam performed a ceremony for ransoming of her life energy. How do you like that? It's like somebody stole her life energy and you have to pay off the kidnappers to get it back. This is whole uh, um, idea that comes from the early Bun tradition in Tibet, the shamanic traditions of Tibet where where uh, living beings have a life energy, a life force and it can be stolen away or disrupted or damaged by certain circumstances or other, whether you take those circumstances to be the work of other beings or not is really up to you but, but uh, it's like people fall into depression of various types and it's like their life energy has been sapped or people are um, abused and uh, or physically or emotionally abused and it like it takes the life out of them so to speak you know we have that phrase in the west where where you know people are just like damaged goods they're just like really changed physically emotionally and, and sort of consciously and so the tibetans you know, this would happen there, obviously, as well, you know, particularly during adolescence and teenage years, a really difficult time, it would happen to youth. And they so they would do this way of trying to acknowledge it and help a person regain what they called their lungta, their, their wind horse, their life force. So they had all sorts of different ceremonies for doing this. Um, as soon as he concentrated on the sheep effigy... <laughs> So in this case, they represented the evil spirit that stole the queen's life force as a sheep. Uh, it turned in the direction of, uh, turned in the correct direction of its own accord. I think probably the other way was the correct direction, like away. When the region of Mesha was devastated by drought, so he produced rain, like tons of it. Um, when they made pills, there's all this esoteric, like customary, like Tibetan stuff that you learn in this chapter. So I don't know if this is of interest or not, but it opens up like this whole other world of Tibetan Buddhism that we don't usually see because we read all these philosophical texts or meditation manuals and we don't really get into, they're just like 
packed full with this stuff. You know, Chung Rinpoche was like the opposite. He was like really not into, you know, bringing all this baggage with him. But the Tibetans, just like every part of their life has different like lore and ritual and and all sorts of weird stuff. So they make uh, little pills that are supposed to like contain the essences of the, the Dharma and the teachers and stuff. And they have ceremonies for making the pills. And then when things go well, the pills multiply on their own. And there you'll see these stories of like, you know, they put away like a little container of like 10 pills and you open it up and there's like 30 pills. <laughs> If I could do that with my oxycodone, you know, <laughs> just kidding. That was not a good joke. <laughs> uh, let's see. The pill-making ritual belonging to the Sana Manjushri as a manifest sign of successful accomplishment. The pills increased in such quantity that the whole mandala was completely covered with them. Once when he's living in the little forest at Rudam at Yong, at, uh, sorry, Yong Wen Pemus Samten Ling, a great snowfall occurred through the mischief of Gelpo spirits. There's one of the class of uh, evil spirits. He subjugated them, tormenting them for seven days by means of modern concentration and striking them with a club. <laughs> I thought it would be be interesting for us to be exposed to this sort of thing like with a club he's like he's he's uh, uh, subduing evil beings that we can't see nor do we believe in really with a club so so you can imagine him he's like waving this club around in the air okay he's okay beating the dharma into them that's right beating that's it. correct and that's how it's supposed to go, right? That's right. It's about time we did that with you guys. That's what I heard. I did find myself wondering whether, like, the altitude in Tibet was... <laughs> the lack of oxygen <laughs> made the imagination, like, really... <laughs> that's good. I like that. That's definitely good. That's a definite possibility. And this was an attribute of Yamantika, the Yadam that he was practicing, I guess, who comes with a club. Mipam later declared that no Gelpo or Gongpo spirits would be able to come within a league. What is a league? Like 20 miles? Who knows what a league is? It's a lot of cubits. I don't know what a cubit is. When he performed the approach phase, uh, the nectar of the ritual vase and the Amrit and Rongja and the shrine overflowed and the top of the mandala shone with a shimmering light. So all these miraculous appearances and stuff. Um, let's see, he tells the uh, fourth Shichin Rabdrum Shehu's visit, and I've been practicing this sauna for a whole year. The long life training is the same as it was when I sat it down at the shrine. It didn't go bad for a whole year. Since, since it neither went sour in the summer nor froze in the winter, this is a sure sign that the deity has been accomplished. And when at the end of uh, at the time of taking the accomplishment, Bo Master and Disciple distributed the substances of long life. The people who received them, including the king and officials, all lived to their full span of life. <laughs> How do you know what somebody's full span of life is? You know, if they die young, uh, but that was their full span of life. Subsequently, 
norms about what's typical longevity for societies. <laughs> Cynthia, we, we can't hear what you're saying. So it's a little bit like when humans talk to dogs, you know, the dogs are like, pretending to hear. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't tell. You could write a chat, though, if you want. Um, okay, so we'll skip some of this stuff. Okay, okay. I agree with you. We'll skip the rest. That's the point where I stopped reading and skipped to the second yeah. part. Yeah. yeah, right about there. But I, I did like the beginning. It was. It's a good taste. You got to get like a taste of yeah. like all this stuff. Oh my god. Okay, so let's skip to the selections on Madhyamaka. I understand you people are experts in, in Madhyamaka. Many of you, you've been studying Madhyamaka for many years. And so you understand uh, deeply and clearly the difference between the relative truth and the ultimate truth and what Swatantrika is and what Prasangika is and what a non-implicative negation is. So we can just dive in. Mipam's non-sectarian attitude from his answer to Drakkar Choku. May the force be with you. There are, generally speaking, some slight differences in the manner of exposition adopted by the learned masters of Tibet of the earlier and later traditions. Just some slight differences. Speaking for myself, this is me, Palm. I was, I was in the uh, present life, born in the old translation school, sort of like the Old Testament and the New Testament, right? And because I have imbibed the nectar-like instructions from the mouths of the great holders of its teachings, I feel an intense devotion to its doctrine and those who uphold it. And um, they don't give the context here, but we read the context in the introduction. So just to refresh your memory slightly, this gentleman, Drakkar Toku, was one of Mipam's main opponents uh, or disputants. And uh, uh, after Mipam wrote his famous commentary on the ninth chapter of the Bodhicharavatara of Shanti Deva, the wisdom chapter, he wrote a rather uh, revolutionary or radical interpretation of that chapter which in which he um, uh, obliquely and not directly but obliquely uh, um, says that the Galupas and, and their their uh, hero Tsongkhapa had a mistaken interpretation or maybe explanation of emptiness 
And so if you say that to a Galupa, they get very upset. And so this Drakkar Choku got very upset. He wrote some nasty things to Mipalm. And this is Mipalm's, the introduction to his response. For this reason, in grounding myself chiefly in the essential principle, it consists simply of not being possessed by an evil and destructive spirit, the wrong attitude of denigrating profound and sacred traditions. I composed a short explanation of our scriptural teachings, following in the footsteps of the holy masters of the past. I assumed, I'm sorry, it seemed to me moreover that if in that explanation I had not alluded briefly to the different assertions of our own and other schools and to the ways in which their respective positions are upheld. The view and realization of the holy beings of the past, the sphere of profound primordial wisdom that is hard to grasp, would not be even vaguely understood. And I thought that those who are addicted to merely verbal disputation, the sphere of the ordinary intellect, would once again speak ill of the earlier tradition, being ignorant of its arguments. For they have cast away the unbroken transmission of the profound essential instructions of the lineage of the learned and accomplished masters of India and Tibet. They reject the texts that explain the untarnished view thereof, and hold in contempt the supreme and holy beings who have beheld them. Seeing this, and wishing to be of assistance, I had no choice but to raise my voice, and I spoke generally of a few essential points, keeping my remarks to a strict minimum, despite the fact that there was a great deal to say. So what you, one of the things that's uh, underlying this whole situation or difference of opinion. There's sort of two parts of it. One is that the view of um, how to understand and how to understand and then how to explain the relative and the ultimate truths differ between different traditions. But the other thing that's going on here is that the Nyingma's view is that they inherited and accept and continue to propagate the tradition of the great pundits, the great scholar meditators of India. They, they inherited their teachings in an unbroken lineage from the Buddha. And they don't disparage any of them. They see all of them as being incremental and synchronized. And this is a really key point. They, they, they thereby do not denigrate any of the teachers in India or their texts. So um, what, what we went through a little bit earlier in, in the introduction and in uh, much more depth in other classes is that we have in India, there's basically two main traditions of the presentation of the middle way which is the fundamental teaching of Buddhism, and in particular the Mahayana view, consists of the middle way between extremes, between the two or four extremes, right? And so the first presentation of the middle way focused on and emphasized the empty aspect of reality. And this was expressed in the Prajnaparamita Sutras that appeared 
early on in the first century or two before the common era and were then um, expounded upon by Nagarjuna in, uh, in, in a very profound but cryptic way and then by his followers thereafter they kept that same spirit his student Aryadeva his main student and then a couple of centuries later a gentleman named Buddha Palita and um, after him Chandra Kirti the famous author of the main texts of the of the Shedra curriculum on the view which is the Madhyamaka Avatara the entry into the middle way so is that what he meant in the beginning by when he said I'm from the old translation school no so no so when he's he says the old translation school in Tibet there were um, the Buddhism was introduced in the eighth century by Shantarakshita and Padmasambhava and Vimalamitra and Vairochana, mainly these four gentlemen. And um, they were invited by the king, Trisong Detson, and that king's great. Uh, grandson turned out to uh, be an enemy of the Buddha Dharma and an ally to the Bun, which had been gradually more and more suppressed and pushed aside. And we don't ever, we don't really know the real story, by the way, you know. We hear how evil this king was that he persecuted all the Buddhists, but, you know, what they don't say is that probably the Buddhists persecuted the Bunpo in order to establish Buddhism in Tibet, right? You don't get that part of the story. But you do get the part of the story where this king, this so-called evil king named Long Dharma, persecuted the Buddhists, and killed lots of Buddhists, destroyed monasteries, and almost completely wiped out Buddhism. He wiped out in, institutionalized monastic Buddhism in Tibet. And thanks to the, to the, uh, the way that the Nyingma tradition transmitted the Dharma through family lineages, non-monastic family lineages, they were able to preserve their tradition unbroken throughout this period. Whereas the monastic-oriented schools had to re-import Buddhism from India to rekindle their traditions. And so all the traditions that come after this persecution are called the new translation schools. And they focus on the term translation because in the early tradition there was a huge amount of translation of the Indian texts. Huge project funded by the kings to translate all the Dharma texts they could in a coordinated fashion. It was one of the most incredible projects actually ever undertaken in the human race because the volume of books was uh, huge and the complexity of the project was intense. And they came up with huge lexicons of how to translate different terms. They agreed upon how to translate terms. Imagine that. <laughs> and then all of that, you know, a lot of that was destroyed, but not completely, but sort of hidden for a while during the persecution. And then 
Yeah, people like Marpa goes to India, studies and brings back texts, translates them. Um, Sakya and uh, Atisha. Atisha comes. And uh, so we have this influx of uh, the the Indian tradition once again into Tibet in the 11th, 12th, 13th, up to the 14th century when at which point Buddhism was entirely wiped out in Tibet. I'm sorry, in India by the Mongols primarily. Um, and uh, so that's the, the what's what the phrase old translation and new translation refers to in the new influx of Buddhism. Again, they brought huge numbers of Tibet texts from India and translated those. Uh, not quite as coordinated a project, but again, another massive translation project. And they uh, compile texts together into collections, which today become the two main collections of Buddhist texts in, in Tibet. <clears throat> There's a collection of texts attributed to the Buddha that contain a few what we would call Hinayana texts, mostly the Vinaya, the, the uh, rules for monks, and then a huge amount of Mahayana sutras, just like unbelievable, and then an even more huge, massive amount of tantras. When you look at the like a chart of the number of pages of like tantras, sutras, Mahayana sutras, and then sort of Hinayana. The tantras are just massive. And uh, and when they did that, they excluded a huge amount of the texts that were translated in the early phase, the, the old translation uh, phase of introduction of Buddhism in Tibet. The Nyingma tantras, because they couldn't find in the 14th century when these collections were compiled, they couldn't find Sanskrit original sources for them, which was their way of determining authenticity because if it didn't come from Sanskrit or, or, or an Indian, other Indian language, and there were others, Gandhari, Apabramsa, if it didn't come from one of those, then it's not an authentic Buddhist text. So they excluded a huge amount of Nyingma texts from the, the authorized canon, which obviously produced a lot of antagonism between the two traditions. You know, like, so you don't accept our books, do you? How often have we heard that, right? So then the Nyingmas had to go about gradually uh, putting together a collection of their own tantras. And then they, they did that, and they have their own tantra collection of the old tantras of the stuff that uh, they received in the early period, much of which was excluded. Anyway, I digressed. So uh, we had Nagarjuna on the one hand who emphasizes the empty aspect of reality, and then we have Maitreya and Asanga who emphasize the the aspect of the capability of sentient beings becoming enlightened, but in nature. And that all sentient life has but in nature, has the ability to become enlightened. And the interesting twist is that uh, inanimate phenomena are the projection of the minds of sentient beings are viewed as the projection of the minds of sentient beings, basically by both of those two traditions, 
or by all traditions of Buddhism, as well as most Hinduistic traditions, view that the, the animate world is a creation, a sort of illusory manifestation of the collective unconscious of sentient beings, what we would call the Aliya Vishnana. So we share the same or similar Aliya Vishnana, not the same, a similar Aliya Vishnana, and so we seem see the same external world. We agree on what's red and what's blue and, and what trees are and, and so forth. And um, so these two traditions had different ways of understanding the true nature of reality. Uh, they agreed on uh, the path. Basically, they, they basically agreed on the path and on the, the uh, Vinaya rules, the monastic rules they did not disagree on. Uh, but you have these two traditions. And then Shantarakshi to synthesize these two in the uh, 8th century. He brings these two traditions together. And it was not really recognized by a lot of other teachers because it was late in the development of Buddhism in India and Buddhism was in decline in many parts of India. So he was in northern India and it's in the west and the south. The Muslims had taken over and were the uh, Mongols and had killed off lots of the Buddhists. And um, um, so uh, in the second phase of the introduction of Buddhism into Tibet, they, they uh, sort of rediscovered the importance of Chandra Kirti and Nagarjuna's presentation. And they get overwhelmed with uh, enthusiasm for that. And then they start downplaying the tradition of Asanga and Maitreya as being sort of applicable to the relative world. It's like Nagarjuna explained the way reality is, and um, Asanga and Maitreya explained the path. That's how they characterize them. When we say profound and vast, traditions, the Garjan is profound. It's said to be profound because, because of his understanding of the true nature of reality as beyond conceptualization. And Asanga and Maitreya, their presentation is vast because it presents in incomprehensible detail the different aspects of the path of the Bodhisattva so that it, it can be applied by innumerable different sentient beings. And um, so they continue to separate, they, they re-separated them. And what Mipam is saying is that the Nyingmas inherited the synthesis from Shantarakshita where they didn't denigrate Asanga and Maitreya's presentation of the nature of reality and say that, oh, they, they're just good at presenting the past. And if you want the nature of reality, you have to go to Nagarjuna. They felt that both of them presented both the, the nature of reality and the path. Nagarjuna also presented the path and with equal profundity. And you need to bring the two of them together. And so the Nyingmas feel that they, they inherited that from the start and they had never deviated. And so they don't denigrate Shantarakshita. They don't denigrate Bhava Viveka or the Swatantrakas the way the Galupas denigrate the Swatantrakas. So there's an interesting logic there of like, you know, why would all these great teachers in India have been teaching a lesser Dharma? 
basically the Galupas feel that all these teachers, Bhava Viveka, Vasubandhu, Asanga, Maitreya, Shantaraksarta, were teaching a lesser Dharma for sort of like uh, beings who weren't ready yet for the profound true Dharma. Very sort of uh, um, arrogant, you know. Anyway, so that's, yeah. Okay, so this is all really interesting, um, but you're going kind of fast. So is there a book that kind of does this historical overview, um, maybe? Yeah, there's a, there's a great in, uh, introduction by uh, Wollstone to the book called The uh, Adornment of the Middle Way. It's by Shantarakshita and it's translated by Padmakara. And we did a class, a couple of classes ago called uh, Empty When Full and Full When Empty. I was there for that, but... I think you have that source book. In the beginning of that source book, we have that introduction. Okay. It's like 30, 40, maybe 50 page introductions. A wonderful introduction. He, he goes through all this. Maybe I wasn't ready for it then. You know, it's a lot to take in. You were brand, that was like your first course. And if you email me, I'll send you just that introduction. If you want to reread that, have it handy. I have it. If, okay. If it's in there, I have it. Okay, good. Check me out. See if it's, see if it's not, let me know. And hopefully, like we go through this uh, periodically, this scheme, and hopefully over time the different names and, and ideas uh, become more familiar. And so you know these people. You know, the key ones, Nagarjuna, his buddy, his sidekick, Aryadeva, Maitreya, his sidekick, Asanga. And then Asanga's brother is who? Who's Asanga's brother? His keeper. No, not his keeper. Vasubandhu. Vasubandhu is the Sangha's brother, right? And then you have Bhava Viveka. He promotes uh, the Swatantraka view. And then Buddha Palata promotes the Prasangika view. And Chandra Kirti is the one that says Bhava Viveka was right. Anyway, I'm boring you guys because you all know this backwards and forwards. I, did you send me the introduction? This is in the introduction, yeah, just read did it you there. Send it? Yeah, I'll send it to all of you. How's that? Excellent. Thank you. If do you've been you, there, done Derek, that. do you yes. have like one of your dork tree branch things where like you explain where all the teachers... I was thinking the same thing, like one of those really nerdy charts, you know. Yeah. Like, do you have one? Or are you going to make it, make one? It, Maybe it sh one. we should make one. We should make one if we have any artists here. It's mm -hmm. like a dowsing rod. Have you seen like a dows? You know what a dowsing rod is? Like you hold a stick and it branches, right? So you got Nagarjuna on one branch and the song on the other branch, and then they meet at Shantarakshita. I, I feel like you know them all so well. Maybe you could do it. I. I think you're right. I think I'm right. I will endeavor to accomplish that. Thank you, sir. Thank you for thank you for meant for pointing it out. What a good idea! And therefore, I don't have to explain it anymore further. We can go on. 
Anyway, the reason for this is that on my own part, I have equal and impartial respect for all the excellent teachings of the holy masters of both our and other schools. Nevertheless, given the various divergent positions that may be adopted, points that differ from others incidentally arise as one speaks about one's own tradition. But however may be the assertions, so I'm on the first full paragraph on uh, 128, by the way. But however may be the assertions of the wise and accomplished masters of other schools, I have cultivated the attitude of thinking that they were made according to the need, uh, sorry, to need and were meaningful for the training of their disciples. So this idea is, is a this pivotal idea that the difference in teachings between different traditions is not because people get it wrong, but that everybody has a different way of looking at things and different needs and different capacities. And some people get get it when you say it one way. Some people, when you get it, get it when you say it another way. And so there's all these different varieties because of the variety of sentient beings, not because there's right and wrong versions. I consider it an unacceptable fault to nourish the wrong attitude of an angrily denigrating others, and I believe that it serves no purpose to speak about what one does not oneself find meaningful, and yet one only has to say something that diverges from the position of others, and the majority of people nowadays cling strongly and aggressively to their own side. <laughs> Very relevant for today. <laughs> Uh, totally. They have no sense of impartiality. The readers of both the old and new traditions spend years squabbling over verbal formulations, squeezing every syllable of the words. Few are those who understand the profound key points correctly, whereas the ignorant majority think to themselves the teachings of Tsongkhapa. I love the, the did you did you catch the way what he said about them? Whereas the ignorant majority, <laughs> he's like being Mr. Nice Guy, and then he throws in there a little uh, <laughs> rather deprecating epithet. You know, they were the vast majority in Tibet, the, the Galupas, the ignorant majority. Um, think to themselves, the teachings of Tsongkhapa and other great masters are being attacked even by this non-entity. <laughs> and they're full of indignation for this reason because those who grasp the crucial points um, sorry, because those who grasp the crucial points are few. Those who grasp them are few. I did not say much. Now in the snowy land of Tibet, and indeed there's a lot of snow there, the great and venerable Lord Tsongkhapa was unrivaled in his activities for the sake of the Buddha's teachings, and with regard to his writings, which are clear and excellently composed, I do indeed feel the greatest respect and gratitude. However, and here's the punchline, <laughs> nevertheless, there are still some differences between his position and the view of the supreme and holy masters of the earlier tradition, and it is the responsibility of those who uphold that same tradition to treasure its teachings, establish them by scripture and reasoning, establishing. This is the usual practice of all who expound expound tenant systems. Therefore, if others get angry when the upholders of the earlier tradition make statements to that end, they're simply making an exhibition 
of their own shortcomings. Conversely, when in response to our refutation of diverging positions, the upholders of the teachings of later masters reply, reply correctly with arguments based on scripture and reasoning. If we, the holders of the early tradition, react with anger, we too are at fault. For whatever is propounded by our own or other schools must be examined to see whether it accords accurately with scripture and is supported by reasoning based on objective fact. Reasoning based on fact, not reasoning based on rumor. It is wrong to proceed simply on the basis of attachment to one's own side. Trepo Drakkar Tulku Logzong Pelden Tenzin from Glorious Drepung, the great center of Dharma, is renowned for his clear intelligence, has composed an exposition of the profound crucial points of Madhyamak entitled A Pleasurable Discourse for Those of Clear Understanding. It is a lucid exposition of his own tradition and was sent to me as a refutation. When it arrived, not only was I not displeased to receive it, I was thrilled as a peacock at the sound of summer thunder. <laughs> That's such a cool phrase. I got to remember that one to use that. Wow, I am so excited like a peacock in the summer. Uh, when people have embraced the tradition through which they enter the door of the Dharma, they naturally object to whatever is said against it, such as the good and noble practice of children who follow in the footsteps of their parents. Okay, 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 enough of that sort of stuff. Great emptiness, freedom from ontological extremes from Mipom's commentary on the wisdom chapter. So this little snippet from his commentary on the ninth chapter of Shanti Deva's Bodhicharavatara, Way of the Bodhisattva, the chapter on wisdom, it's extremely controversial commentary. Now regarding the ultimate truth, an emptiness that is just a non-implicative negation. Now regarding the ultimate truth, i.e., which is an emptiness that is just a non-implicative negation, the understanding that phenomena are without origin and without abiding, in parentheses, the simple denial, in other words, that they come into being, they remain in being, and so on, is no more than a point of entry into great emptiness. So we have different levels of, of understanding of emptiness. There's the entryway emptiness, entry into emptiness, which is the non-implicative, a simple non-implicative negation. There is no truly existent phenomena, thing. That's the entryway. That's not the conclusion of the true nature of reality. So the great emptiness is the freedom from all four ontological extremes. So he's implying that the other, the, the non-applicative assertion does not go beyond the four extremes. It is therefore referred to as the figurative ultimate or concordant ultimate. Now this is a translation of a term that's sometimes translated as the numerable or the countable ultimate or the uh, example ultimate. And the idea is, is that in the tradition that Mipom is coming from, there's this notion that there's that it, it's helpful to identify 
the fact that we can we can talk about emptiness we can describe emptiness even though it's an absence we can describe that absence and we can prove that that absence is the true nature of reality at least in a sort of entry level way by using by using logical reasoning based on fact and when we're doing that when we're when we're talking about or logically reasoning into that nature of reality as being beyond the four ontological extremes being a non-implicative negation being empty then we're talking about a conceptual emptiness that is very similar to the real thing but obviously it's not the real McCoy it's obviously not the real emptiness and we know that when we're talking about it but there's a tendency to conflate the two and so what Mipom, the tradition that he hails from is doing is they're intentionally giving them different names so that we know that when we're talking about emptiness real emptiness is completely beyond anything we can point at or describe or lead ourselves towards on the other hand it's really helpful to talk about and understand the approximate emptiness so Prasangikas tend to totally dismiss this approximate emptiness and say, no, no, just let go completely and you'll experience, you'll know emptiness. That doesn't happen for everyone that easily, nor for most people really. People like Nagarjuna, it happened to. He just had to say there is no thing. There's no going, there's no coming, there's no beginning, no end. And that was it. For most of us, we need a little more. And so it's actually helpful to come to a conceptual understanding of emptiness through logical inferential reasoning. And so Mipom's tradition identifies that and gives them different names so that they can be skillfully appreciated. So when they're pointing to that emptiness, that would be the ultimate emptiness or the great perfection emptiness as opposed to the figurative that's right that's right there's a good note um a little bit later on note 266 where the translator talks about these terms figurative ultimate and non-figurative ultimate um, can you read that for us Emily? sure that's yeah big. so note 266 says what page adorn uh sorry page 218 um, in the adornment of the middle way, the figurative ultimate and the non-figurative ultimate, I'm not going to try to read the Tibetan, um, were originally translated as the approximate ultimate and the actual ultimate in itself, respectively. These renderings were used experimentally at a time when we had not yet found a more satisfactory translation. Subsequently, in later translations, we adopted the twin terms figurative and non-figurative, which correspond more closely with the two Tibetan expressions. The figurative ultimate is so named because, while being a theoretical concept, it is nevertheless a type or figure that points to the actual non-figurative ultimate in itself, the latter being not an intellectual idea, but a profound experience that transcends the ordinary mind. Thank you. 
That's great. Okay, so that's what he's talking about. He gives a quote from the adornment of the middle way, the Madhyamaka Lankara. Since with the ultimate it is attained, it is attuned, it is referred to as the ultimate. So he's talking about the figurative. It, it's it's similar to the real thing, and so we've referred to it as the as with the same name. But you must know that they're actually different, different animals, because from beginningless time beings are accustomed to cling to phenomena as really existent things. They have no occasion to engender the primordial wisdom that's beyond all four ontological extremes. This is why it is at first necessary to cultivate the kind of wisdom that is a mental factor able to understand clearly that, on the ultimate level, all phenomena are simply without existence. Accordingly, all the texts of the Swatantrikas, so there's two traditions of Madhyamaka, Swatantrika, and Prasangika. Swatantrikas are the ones that are famous for putting forward positive logical reasoning for emptiness to prove emptiness, to understand emptiness. And in doing so, they're really describing the figurative ultimate as a way of pointing to the non-figurative. And the prasangikas don't try, they say they don't, they actually end up, they do do the same thing in terms of using logical reasoning. But they say that all they do is they just point out absurd consequences of anything that you'll say. Like if... If you if they ask you for directions and you say, well, you should go east from here, they say, there is no east or west. In other words, they don't get anywhere. That was a joke, a very bad one. Anyway, um, according to all the texts of the Swatantrikas, they say that when the sutras and the shastras refute form and so on as being non-existent, why does he mention form? That's sort of odd to put in there. They refute form. Do they? Why do they? Do they refute form. What is that about? What is form? Any ideas? Why form? Why not animals or shape or color? Why you know? Form is shorthand for everything, right? Form is the first of the five skandhas. Form, feeling, perception, formation, and consciousness. So that's the shorthand for everything. The non-existence in question is simply the contrary of true existence and is referred to as the figurative ultimate. But it is not said that the ultimate nature of phenomena is simply non-existent. So, this is a really important point in that he he's saying that when we talk about emptiness, we're um, we're denying the true reality of phenomena, but we're not saying they're non-existent. What is the difference between non-existent and not truly real? In other words, only things that are empty appear and only emptiness appears. That's a famous way of, of presenting that, which is really helpful to think about. 
as the Madhyama Kalamkara says, <coughs> production and the rest have no reality. Thus, non-production and the rest are equally impossible. Going through the different uh, ontological extremes. And uh, the two truths says the same thing, a famous text by Janana Garba. Clearly, in the ultimate, there's no refutation. There's no, you can't refute the ultimate. There's nothing to refute. When the path is being established on a provisional basis, however, all phenomena, although phenomena are without origin on the ultimate level, it's impossible to refute their appearance on the relative level as things do originate. Separating the two truths. We refute phenomena on the ultimate level. Phenomena don't ultimately exist, but they sure do relatively exist. They're not real, but they exist. So they're differentiating between reality and existence. Existence is like things just appear. They're there. It's not a philosophical statement. Things being real is a philosophical, ontological, conceptual statement. Very important to understand the difference between these. Relatively, phenomena do have characteristics there. You know, hot and cold and things like that. And they're established by the kind of valid cognition that investigates conventional existence. So conventional, valid cognition. Ultimately, however, such phenomena are not established as existing in the way that they appear on the ultimate level, which is why the writer, which is a funny term that they've translated this as using like the legal term of like an addendum to a contract. <laughs> um, on the ultimate level, usually they just say like, um, the, the uh, which is why the additional phrase, you know, the, why the phrase on the ultimate level is always added as a qualification of phenomena that are refuted. Phenomena are not truly existent on the ultimate level. Now, in the Swatantrika world, they use that a lot. In the Prasangika world, they say you have to know, you have to assume that that's there all the time. That phrase, that writer. It is therefore said by the Swatantrikas that phenomena do not exist on the ultimate level, but are unfailing on the relative level. They unfailingly appear. It's thus that each of the two truths is posited quite correctly on its own level. And from the point of view of beginners, this is a far easier way to proceed as Master Baba Viveka, who was the earliest master of the Swatantrika, said, those who spurn the ladder of conventionality gradual stages of the path of merit and wisdom, of understanding the true nature of reality and stages, and try to scale the pinnacles, the roofs and gables of the palace of the ultimate are not to be accounted as wise. On the other hand, to say with regard to their ultimate condition that phenomena exist relatively but do not exist ultimately. In other words, to separate the two characteristics of existence and non-existence, each on its own side, is incorrect. Whatever appears, form and so on, is empty, and whatever is empty appears. Therefore, for as long as the Dharma Dhatu 
the union of appearance and emptiness, free from the 32 misconceptions, which is a, uh, one of the many ways of extrapolating the different conceptual views of how things might exist within the four extremes. Free from the 32 misconceptions does not realize this is not yet the authentic prajnaparamita transcendence of wisdom. That, this is why from the very beginning, glorious Chandra Kirti, author of the Introduction to the Middle Way, <coughs> Shanti Deva, the way of the Bodhisattva, and others, place emphasis on primordial wisdom, self-knowing awareness, free from the four ontological extremes. Through the refutation of existence according to characteristics, on their relative level. The holding of the two truths as separate is also eliminated and appearance and emptiness are united. Through the refutation of existence according to characteristics on the relative level, I think the idea here is through the refutation of there being something that exists according to characteristics on the relative level. Because they already said that you can't deny that there's appearance on the relative level and that phenomena do have characteristics. By means of the view that goes right to the mode of being of the ultimate truth wherein no assertions are made, all positions, whether of existence or non-existence, are demolished by means of consequential arguments. That's the hallmark of a prosangika. Consequential arguments. Arguments that say, well, if you assert this, the consequence of that is so on and so on. It's like in chess, right, where they like think, you know, ten moves ahead consequence of moving your pawn to king's four is <laughs> stale as uh, mate in two moves. Uh, let's see. On account of which Chandra Kirti, Shanti Deva, and those like them came to be known as prasangyakas or consequentialists those of great consequence. The distinction between Prasangas and Swatashukas was an entirely Tibetan invention devised by masters like the supreme scholar Bhutan and others. Um, so Bhutan was a famous Sakya teacher in about the 14th century and he was mostly famous for having compiled the first version of the canon of the teachings of the Buddha of the new translation school or schools. It was certainly not used in India, these phrases of Swatantrika and Prasanka. So uh, these terms were used, like using consequential reasoning or Swatantrika, autonomous uh, assertion, but they were not used to refer to different schools or traditions in India. It's a Tibetan invention. <clears throat> as far as the understanding of the ultimate meaning is concerned, there's no difference at all between them, which is acknowledged that 
they're completely identical on the level of the ultimate truth. It's only the relative truth where they differ. They do, however, diverge in their methods of textual exegesis. This can be seen in Chandrakirti's refutation of Bhava Viveka's saying that in the commentary of Buddha there was the fault of falling, failing to add the rider. He didn't add the rider. <laughs> He broke the contract. You gotta add the writer after every time you say a thing, you have to say on the ultimate level to the object of refutation. With regard to the key points of the ultimate view, um, there is, however, no difference at all between the great founders of the two traditions. They diverge only in the way that they emphasize and explain either the figurative ultimate or the non-figurative actual ultimate. Sorry, only in the way that they emphasize and explain. <laughs> I've discussed all this at some length in my explanation of the Madhyamakalamkara, which the reader is invited to consult. That's his famous commentary on Shantar Rakshita's adornment of the Middle Way. And uh, there's Bullstone's introduction, and then if you're really brave, you read Mipom's introduction to his commentary, which is one of his most famous writings, and uh, very difficult. In the present Prasangika context, he says that because it's basically he's responding to somebody who responded to his commentary on Shanti Devas text, which is considered to be Prasangika. Therefore, emphasis is placed on the great Madhyamaka itself, the union of appearance and emptiness beyond all conceptual elaboration. It should be understood that for this reason, no distinction is made here between the figurative ultimate and the non-figurative ultimate. Some say that the primordial, because it's a prasangika context and not a swatantrika context, so the skillful means used is different. Some say that the primordial wisdom of the Aryas, the Aryas are those who have achieved the path of scene or the first Bhumi and above, or a path of stream entry, constitute the authentic non-figurative ultimate, the freedom from conceptual elaboration, whereas all meditations on emptiness on the part of ordinary beings are meditations on the concordant or figurative ultimate, which is no more than a non-implicative negation. So some say that the determination of these different types of ultimates is based on the, the perceiver, the mind that's engaging in them, whether it's a, the mind of an aria or not. In the present context, when emptiness is being referred to the refutation of form and so on, it's exclusively a non-implicative negation a negation that takes away any ontological existence without implying that there's some other way of existing, remaining. Instead, and sorry, indeed, if it were otherwise, i.e. if the refutation were being made in terms of an implicative negation, then even though phenomena were refuted, the end result would be a clinging to really existent things, on which account an implicative negation is not fitting as the meaning of emptiness. On which account 
Uh, this is not that clear. Then even though phenomena works, the end result would be clinging to real existent things. Eric? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yeah. So therefore, implicative negation is not the way to go, is, is an in, incorrect way to present. Sorry, Lori. No, it was Mary Beth. Oh, Mary Beth, sorry. So the non-implicative negation is saying that emptiness is nothing. And the alternate is saying that emptiness is not nothing. Is, is that sort of that's yeah. sort of a simple way of looking at it yes that um, and he hasn't really got to explaining great emptiness currently he's he's explaining great prasangika it's a little confusing because currently when he's saying some great emptiness he's still referring to great prasangika emptiness he's he hasn't entered the realm of like what what uh uh, the emptiness that is supreme in all aspects, right? We've heard this term, the emptiness that is supreme in all aspects, or the emptiness that contains the supreme of all, which is the way that emptiness is is presented in uh, many Nyingma texts and in the Zhentong, emptiness of other tradition, where we're acknowledging emptiness uh, of the prasangika type as as well as acknowledging that even though even while even while phenomena are empty of any ontological existence buddha nature pervades reality in all directions and so buddha potential is everywhere and that's the, the endowed with the supreme of all characteristics. Emptiness endowed with the supreme of all characteristics. All the same, while phenomena are refuted in the manner of a non-implicative negation, these same phenomena nevertheless continue to appear unfailingly by virtue of interdependence. Just because you refute them doesn't stop them from uh, appearing. In other words, their appearance and their emptiness coincide. Their appearance is a demonstration of their emptiness. It's not. It's not a a a, uh, a contradiction to them being empty. The fact that phenomena appear proves that they're empty. If something can appear out of nothing, it's not really there. If a chair can appear where there was not a chair before, then there's not really a chair there. One must therefore overcome one's way of thinking about things exclusively in terms of assertion or denial. As it said, instead to grasp the emptiness of things and still depend upon the karmic law of cause, and fruit. It's this that is more wonderful than wonderful, more marvelous than marvelous. And this is like the great, sometimes referred to also as the great secret of reality, is, is the uh, sort of uh, linking together these two ways of being, of understanding complete emptiness, and yet depending upon the, 
the details of karma. And likewise, we find in the Panchakrama, the five stages, which is a famous tantric text by Nagarjuna, when voidness and appearance both are seen as each the aspect of the other, they blend together perfectly and thus are said to be united. So when you see the emptiness aspect of things, and when you see the thing aspect of emptiness, then you've brought them together. If you can see the thing aspect of emptiness, the thingness of emptiness. Well, that was one of many texts. Somehow I ended up diverging way too much tonight, so I'm sorry. I have to make it up to you next week. Any other comments or thoughts? Just a little note. Can you hear me? Yes, we hear you now perfectly. Okay, I switched. I turned on my other computer, which is usually uh, worse, but today it's better. The cloud. The cloud. Yeah, so uh, just a note related to the request about the lineage. Um, I don't know if you recall, but years back in a class, we actually did you, some review of the lineages and the various branching off and drew pictures of them. And I have pictures of those from the wall from 2018. All right. We used uh, to have a big easel in the class all the time, right? This one was actually not on the easel. It was on the ones that were sticking to the walls. I don't know if you remember the old Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Neat. Yeah. So Excellent. I have, I have several right. pictures that show one of your versions of this. So I can um, send that to you. Or I think the intent, I, the reason I must have taken them is that we intended at the time to create something from it. And uh, and it didn't happen yet. So. Yeah. Oh, yet. Yeah. I like the way you said yes. That implies that it still could. It could. Thank you. That's great. I, I know there's somebody here who's really good with graphics who can do it. I, I could take a shot at it, but um, if there's anybody else that wants to also. Cool. It's I'd only be happy three to. years. It's not late. Thank you. That'd be great. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah, thank you, Cynthia. That's great. Yeah, because we've been down this road before. <laughs> and uh, people have suggested that a diagram would would uh, be helpful before. So thank you, Cynthia. Maybe you can circulate the photo to all of us and then uh, you, me, and Emily can work on uh, putting it out in a nice way. That'd be great. Thanks. Deja vu all over again. Yeah, yeah. We've been down this road many times before, actually. Okay, well... Uh, sorry for all the delays and not getting through the material tonight. We'll try to figure out how to make that work and maybe even fit in some of the other texts at the back of the book that I omitted originally, which nobody has yet complained about for some strange reason. That's all right. You got to the good stuff tonight. Yeah, we got pretty far. Not yeah, yeah, you got to the good stuff. We went through a lot of empty things. A lot of nothing. We we got to a lot of nothing. <laughs> okay. Uh, chance. Thank you. Oh, we got it. 
by the smeared may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, and may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Nice to see you. Take care. Thank you. See you next week.